Open your Bibles to Isaiah 57. Isaiah 57, our next chapter. I'm going to cover this chapter more quickly. It's a condemnation and indictment of Israel for some of their sins. It doesn't pertain to us as much until we get to the last few verses, the first two verses, as maybe chapter 56 did, and certainly as 55 did, and I hope you enjoyed 55 last Lord's Day. Last Lord's Day in chapter 55 got the attention of one of your sisters in this congregation that after we had gone a few minutes in those first few verses that are indeed wonderful about a feast of fat things and references to the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David, being our leader and commander, she was so worked up to a feverish pitch of delight in the word of God that she wanted to be rebaptized. And this particular sister I baptized not very long ago. But I appreciated that encouragement that was sent to my wife last Sunday afternoon. And what I've just said was, 57 is sins of idolatry. And I could take that and apply it to some things in your life that you may treat like idols, but I don't want to get so far removed from the context by doing that. And because I only have one sermon, and because I do take care of the time to some extent, allow me to go rather quickly through these lessons. Isaiah chapter 57. God warns the wicked and comforts the righteous in light of the judgment that is coming against Israel. And we have that judgment reintroduced to us in verse 9 of chapter 56, where God calls the beasts of the field and the wild beasts of the forest to come and to devour. So while we've had a relief from Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians coming against Israel, it was revived in that ninth verse of chapter 56, and now 57, 58, and 59, along with this chapter, are going to be about God's judgment against Israel. It's broken into a number of parts, the way I have done it. Whether they're helpful or not, I hope they are. My introduction for Isaiah 56 was sufficient. Let's go right to the first lesson. It's in verses 1 and 2, and the lesson is this. Righteous men were secreted out of the judgment, out of the coming judgment. They were taken out early. Even by violent means, they were taken out early. And if you're thinking with me right now, and you're thinking, really? God is going to show mercy to a good man by killing him early, even by violent means? Has that ever happened before, Pastor? Oh, all the martyrs. All the martyrs, they died by violent means, but they were protected from prolonged persecution that took place in many of those cases. So here we go, lesson number one, verses one and two. Righteous men were secreted out of judgment. I read to you Isaiah 57, verses one and two. The righteous perisheth, and no man layeth it to heart. And merciful men are taken away, None considering that the righteous is taken away from the evil to come. He shall enter into peace. They shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. And amen. This is the word of the Lord. These are the words of the Lord to us. The righteous perisheth. Manasseh was killing people left and right, so the Bible says blood filled the city from one end to the other. It says perisheth. It doesn't say the righteous man died. 
It doesn't say the righteous man had his soul gathered to his people. It says the righteous man perisheth and no man layeth it to heart. Nobody, the wicked of that city, righteous men would have. The righteous know how to think this way. Why is God allowing good men to die young? When good men die young, people should ask questions. But the wicked never do it. So the, no man layeth it to heart. The wicked didn't consider what was going on in Jerusalem. And merciful men were taken away. Men that had shown mercy in their lives were not shown mercy in the middle of life and were taken away before their time. And no one considered what was really going on. The wicked didn't. What was really going on is when God treats his people that way, there is something going on and you're able to look behind the curtain of current events and say, it's going to get bad. It's going to get bad. And they should have, the wicked of that city should have, but they didn't. No one considered it. No one laid it to heart that the righteous was taken away from Isaiah 56 and verse 9. I'm looking right at you, Eric DeVrent. Isaiah 56 and verse 9, where God calls the wild beasts of the field and the wild beasts of the forest to come and devour is the evil to come of this verse right here. We have used Isaiah 57, 1 many times before to comfort us that when God takes out a man relatively young, like Hezekiah, Hezekiah died at 54 after getting his 15 years. He had his fatal disease when he was 39 years old. And the Lord took him. And when people are taken away early, we realize God's doing something. He's taking them away to protect them because sometimes he did that. Josiah is an example of God actually doing that. Hezekiah begat Manasseh. Manasseh begat Ammon. Ammon begat Josiah. Josiah repented and was the king that turned to the Lord from a wicked predecessor more than any man. And God took him out early because God was about to judge the nation with Nebuchadnezzar for the sins of Manasseh. And so Josiah died early in battle because of this principle of God taking righteous men and merciful men away from the evil to come. Wicked men did not understand this. And listeners, brothers and sisters, learn the great lesson here that death is better than life, especially when judgment is coming on a nation or in a family. Start with the many martyrs that I've already mentioned to you, the records of which often describe death as sweet relief. When those people, when we've had their testimonies read to us two years now in this church, every Sunday we've had the testimony of, an, of a martyr and we saw the sweetness that they had about death being so much better than the torment that they were going through. The Lord was taking them out. And remember, there's a little added feature about martyrs. They have a special place in heaven under the altar of God, Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. So wise men are able to look at that and they don't say, see, living righteously doesn't get you God's mercy. Living righteously doesn't get you God's blessing. Oh, yes, it does. They got greater blessings than you do by being healthy and happy at 70 in a nice, comfortable home because you don't have a testimony like they had, and you are not under the altar of God, nor ever will be, like they are. So we've got to see everything that happens when righteous men die. Even wicked Ahab 
Do you know that wicked Ahab humbled himself enough when Elijah preached against him that the Lord said, I'm not going to let him see what I'm going to do to his sons. What Jehu did to his family tree was impressive. Do you remember 70 sons with their heads cut off, put in a pile at the entrance to Samaria? That's what happened to the father of that family. But the Lord took him out of the way because he humbled himself. So let's be wise about death. If someone dies before their time in our congregation, let's say that we have a 30-year-old that gets the coronavirus and dies. Instead of us being Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar and saying that they must have had a bunch of secret sins in their life, let us remember Isaiah 57 and verses 1 and 2. Because the righteous perish and God has a whole lot more going on than just what you think. Those three men were so unmerciful to Job and they had to come to Job in the final chapter of that book and beg for mercy. For him to pray to God for them because God was angry at those three men for mistreating Job. Some of you love insider information and you think you read insider information, which you never have and you never will. That's why it is insider information. But nevertheless, you like insider information, and I guess I do, but it's this kind of insider information. I want to know what God is thinking and doing to the extent he'll allow me to. And it isn't very far, because the secret things belong unto the Lord our God. Deuteronomy 29, 29, and just these revealed things belong unto us and to our children, but this verse is revealed to me, and it does tell me that God takes men out of this world for reasons other than being bad or that they have secret sins. He still calls them righteous. He still calls them merciful. He's protecting them from what he's about to drop on the rest of the nation. And here's how they get to live after he takes them out. He shall enter into peace. They shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. Now, I could go on forever on this verse because it's, it is a, a precious verse indeed. He shall enter into peace. What's coming? What's the uh, last few words, words of verse 1? Evil to come. But he goes straight into peace. He goes straight into peace two ways. His body's at peace in the ground. Because nobody does anything to a closed casket. Second, he goes into peace in his spirit because his spirit is immediately in paradise with the Lord. Just like Jesus told the thief on the cross, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. And the only part of the thief that was with Jesus in paradise was his spirit. His body was in the ground like Jesus' body was in the ground, but Jesus' spirit was immediately with the Father because Jesus' last words were, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. The minute, the second, the nanosecond we die and pass through the curtain of death, we enter into peace. Amen. Our spirits are in the most peaceful place ever. Amen. Our bodies are pretty peaceful too. They don't move or twitch. They just lie there comfortably at rest. And so we look at this verse and we just rejoice in it. And I'm giving you both sides of it. And if you, were, if you read the outline, there's a side to be taken on these clauses. He shall enter into peace. That's the spirit. They shall rest in their beds. Notice jumping back and forth from singular pronouns to plural pronouns is just so common. You can't let it throw you. Uh, they, shall enter, they shall rest in their beds. What bed do men rest in when they die? That's their coffin. So they're resting, and we make it comfortable. 
you know, there's some, there's some burials in the Bible. Asa's burying in the Bible was impressive. They got all the apothecaries to work. And that, those satin sheets and that thing, they smelled wonderful because it was an impressive burial. And we use satin sheets and satin pillows, and we make it pretty comfortable. It looks pretty comfortable. I've never slept in one yet. I'm heading there soon. But they shall rest in their beds. And it's called beds in the Bible. And I'm not going to take you and look at all those verses. Let's just look at this in its simplicity. Each one walking in his uprightness. Each one walking in his uprightness. When a man dies, a righteous man and a merciful man, these are good men, these are saved men, these are elect men, these are born-again men, when they die, their bodies rest in a coffin, their spirits enter into peace, and they walk before the Lord as upright men. Do you know what they're all called in Hebrews chapter 12? You do, because I've quoted it to you so many times. Hebrews 12, 22 through 24 says that heaven is filled with the spirits of just men made perfect. They no longer can sin, but notice what they're called, just men. They walk in their uprightness. Enoch walked with God on earth, but God loved Enoch so much he said, listen, the distance between us is too great. You're walking with me down there. You have a great testimony. All you care about is pleasing me. Come on up and walk with me here. He just kept right on walking with the Lord, right into heaven. He didn't even have to die. He's one of the great characters of the Bible. We don't know very much about him, but we know this. He had this testimony that he pleased God. Let's have that testimony. Amen. And let's walk with God. But that's what this, these two verses are saying that the evil that is coming, the judgment that God's going to pour out upon Jerusalem and upon Judah, the wicked should have looked that righteous men and merciful men were being killed. Manasseh was taking out the best people, and the Lord wasn't protecting them, but he was protecting them. He was protecting them from the evil to come. He was putting them into a state of peace in their souls and their bodies. He was letting their bodies rest in their coffins, and they were able to walk with God as upright men in the presence of the living God. That's a blessing. That's a salvation. That's a deliverance. But the wicked didn't see it and didn't recognize if God is taking his people out of this city, what is coming on this city is going to be ugly and terrible. Right. Whole different perspective that we get from insider information. Isaiah 57, 1, it is. It gives us a picture that we, don't, we wouldn't get otherwise. Do you know what we're all by nature? I have a whole church of these. Let's be honest about ourselves. Think about yourselves and your brothers and sisters. We're all Eliphaz, as Bill, Dad, and Zophar. If something bad happens to one of us, I wonder what he was hiding. Let's, never, let's not do that. Let's believe all things. Let's hope all things. As 1 Corinthians 13 tells us to do, which is true brotherly love. And let's remember this passage. The Lord could be showing him mercy that he's not showing us. The 30-year-old that gets the virus and dies, who's the Lord being more merciful to? Him or us? Hmm? You've got to measure it. Let's measure it Paul's way. It is far better to depart and to be with Christ. Okay, next lesson, verses 3 through 5. God indicted and mocked the Jewish idolaters. Oh, yes. You want to see the boldness of Isaiah now? Oh, yeah. Isaiah is very bold. He's going to call them a brood of bastards. 
Here we go. These idolaters of the Jews, the ministerial association and all their followers, the Jews of Jerusalem, probably in the reign of Manasseh. Verses 3 through 5. These wicked men in verses 1 and 2 did not recognize God's operation of taking the good men out of the city so that they would not have to endure Nebuchadnezzar's three expeditions into Judah to besiege the city, rape the women, and burn the thing to the ground. Okay? But, draw near hither, ye sons of the sorceress, the seed of the adulterer and the whore, against whom do ye sport yourselves? Against whom make ye a wide mouth and draw out the tongue? Are ye not children of transgression, a seed of falsehood, inflaming yourselves with idols under every green tree, slaying the children in the valleys under the cliffs of the rocks. Amen and amen. This is the word of God. This is Isaiah. This is Isaiah being very bold. And when I used the phrase, a brood of bastards, I was choosing that from a particular commentator that is in a category altogether of his own. The old John Trapp from several hundred years ago. He comments on every verse in the Bible like that. <laughs> He's the most... Listen, if you were to read him for one minute, you would send me a card and cheeses and wine to my door to thank me for being so discreet in the pulpit. But I, I love reading him because in a case like this, he hates these idolaters as much as God did, as much as Isaiah did. And so, but just look at it. They are bastards. They're the seed of the adulterer and the whore. When you combine an adulterer and a whore, what do you get? But a bastard. Look down there in verse 4. They're, you're the children of transgression. You're the result of a sin. So they're bastards. But this is just Isaiah. Let's go after what Isaiah was, was saying the most. Draw near hither. Hear the indictment from the throne of glory. Hear the indictment from the God of glory. Come here, you sons of the sorceress, you that have committed yourself to witchcraft. And if you go to 2 Kings 21, I believe it is. If it's not 2 Kings 21, it's 1 Kings 21 about Manasseh. You will find that Manasseh not only filled the city of Jerusalem with blood, but that he filled the city with witchcraft and he brought his idols into the temple of God. That's what crossed the line with the God of glory. He brought his idols and put them up in God's temple in Jerusalem. But here's God saying, come here. Come here, you sons of the sorceress, you people addicted to witchcraft, you seed of the adulterer and the whore. Spiritual adultery is the issue under consideration, as you're going to know as we progress down through this passage. Spiritual adultery is when you stop worshiping the true and living God, or you only give him lip service, and you serve another God, or you serve yourself. That's spiritual adultery. To be a friend of the world is to be a spiritual adulteress or adulterer. James 4.4, 4. ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whosoever will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. That is spiritual adultery. We claim to be Christians, but we're in love with the world and their junk. And it takes away our love of God. He wants it all. He says, thou shalt love me with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
He's very jealous that way. So much so, his name is Jealous with a capital J. He wants it all. The first commandment is to love the Lord our God. That's spiritual adultery. And it applies in both testaments to anyone. It's the strongest terminology possible for us in our human relationships to understand the betrayal, the disloyalty, the profanity, the vile nature of leaving God and our promise of loving him in our baptisms, our promise of loving him in our profession of faith to love other things like his enemy. It's like instead of being married to God, we sneak out at night and flirt with the world. That is spiritual adultery. And the Bible calls it whoredom under every green tree throughout the Bible many, many times. There's a sermon on our website entitled Spiritual Adultery that shows you many of the verses. So all of that explanation was to get your attention about the seed of the adulterer and the whore because you're going to see that a bed's going to be set up to an idol, a bed, because it's spiritual adultery. Verse 4, they mocked the prophets. Against whom do ye sport yourselves? Brethren, I am reading in the word of God distinctly and giving you the sense. I'm not turning you to a hundred cross-references to take an extra hour that we don't need to take. Just let me give you the sense of these verses. These people were mocking the prophets of God. And there's a multitude of verses that say that generation of Jews did mock the prophets. They mocked the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Psalm 22 talks about their tongues coming out against him on the cross. Against whom do ye sport yourselves, making fun of the prophets and his message? If you were to read the word of God, you would find out that God said, don't ever let those people say again, the burden of the Lord. What's the burden of the Lord? Because when they asked that question, they were asking it to make sport. What's the burden of the Lord right now? Hey, Isaiah, what's the burden of the Lord? Ezekiel, what's the burden of the Lord today? You're always talking about God's judgment. You know I'm living pretty well. What's the burden today? And God said, don't you ever let them use that expression again. Make them change that expression to, what does the Lord have to say today? And I'll give them a new lesson. Uh, I'm, just, I'm just sharing this with you, brethren. They made fun of the prophets, and that's what verse 4 is about this wicked generation. I'm sorry that Isaiah 50s are all not like 55. I love Isaiah 55. I love the feast of fat things. I love a soul delighting itself in fatness. Remember? That's Isaiah 55. That's pretty good stuff. That's a soul really living. But this is, these are the words of God as well. Are these inspired words? Young man who presented Psalm 12 to us today, are these inspired words here too? Well, then let's deal with them. Verse 4 is this wicked nation. This is why they're going to get devoured. This is why the wild beasts are being called by God to devour them, because they're mocking their prophets. They're making wide their mouth, opening their mouth, mouth wide, just like the dentist asked you to do, or the doctor used to ask you to do as he stuck a stick halfway to your stomach, and draw out the tongue, sticking their tongues out, mocking at the prophets. Are ye not children of transgression, a seed of falsehood? Notice the question that opened it up. Against whom do ye sport yourselves? Inflaming yourselves with idols under every green tree, slaying the children in the valleys under the cliffs of the rocks. You're inflaming yourselves. You're heating yourself. Brethren, the, Bi the, the God of heaven knows every single aspect of human nature. The God of heaven knows everything about a whorish person. The Bible knows everything about sexual lust. The Bible describes it in Hosea chapter 7 as a baker heating up an oven. 
So you're heated up so much that a man's inflamed with his passions of lust and can't stop committing fornication? I have letters written to me every week of my life about people reading those Proverbs and men writing me that they can't quit, they can't stop. Because they're inflamed. These, were, these whoremongers under every green tree were inflaming themselves. They were filling themselves with passion for their idol gods and their idol worship. And God's just blasting them the indictment, I'm a barking dog. And Isaiah was a barking dog. And so we're getting language like this from the prophets. They mock the prophets in verse 4. But when you mock a prophet of God, you're actually mocking God himself. And they were inflaming themselves with idols under every green tree, getting all worked up about their idols, like women get worked up about an evergreen tree every December 25th. And they slayed their children in the valleys, the Valley of Hinnom, as it's described in other places in the Bible where they sacrificed their children. So this is the indictment. This is the warning from God. This is God indicted and mocked the Jewish idolaters. So we come to the next lesson. It took us down through verse 6. Among the, I'm sorry that I didn't read verse 6. Among the smooth stones of the stream is thy portion. They, they are thy lot. Even to them hast thou poured a drink offering. Thou hast offered a meat offering. Should I receive comfort in these? Lesson number 2 runs from verse 3 to verse 6. Forgive an error in my notes that caused me to err with you. Lesson number 2 is God indicting and mocking these idolaters, and it's verses 3 through 6, and if you've already marked in your Bible and you need me to buy you a new one, I will do so. It's my error. Among the smooth stones of the stream, have you ever been out in the middle of a stream where the water's run for a long time, and it does smooth the stones as sand rubs by those stones, and other stones hit them, and it smooths them, and they would use those smooth stones for their altars and for their idols. And so the Lord says... Among the smooth stones of the stream is thy portion. You have chosen, instead of having Jehovah as thy portion, because that's the Bible language, the Lord God Jehovah was the portion of Jacob. Jeremiah 10, 16 says it, among other places. Instead of the portion being God, you've made smooth stones in a stream your portion. This is why I call it God indicting and God mocking these idolaters. They, they are thy lot. Is this the lot that you've chosen for your religion? When I chose you to be my people, you were my people and I was your God. Even to them, they've poured out a drink offering. You know, their best wine from their vineyard. And they've offered a meat offering, their best ox. They've offered to smooth stones from a stream. That, do you know what kind of jealousy that causes in God? that he's reduced to smooth stones in a stream, that me being your God, your personal friend, every day, pillar of fire at night, pillar of cloud during the day. I met with Moses. I gave you my law in writing. I etched it into tables of stone. I, was your, I delivered you out of Egypt. I, I fed you breakfast cereal every morning that tasted like honeycomb. And you want smooth stones. He's angry. He deserves, he should be. He's wroth. We'll get to it. He should be. Yes, Lord. What terribleness. Should I receive comfort in these? This religion of yours, should it comfort me? Should it calm me down? Brethren, listen to me. He's wroth. Should these sacrifices that you're offering to smooth stones, should they calm me down? Should they back me off? 
Should they comfort me? Should these, should I receive comfort in these? No, he shouldn't because he's jealous and he's going to go forward with his indictment of their idolatry. Verses 7 through 10. Idolaters do not see their hopeless religion. Verses 7 through 10. Idolaters do not recognize or see their hopeless religion. I read to you 7 through 10. Upon a lofty and high mountain hast thou set thy bed. Even thither wentest thou up to offer sacrifice. Behind the doors also in the posts hast thou set up thy remembrance. For thou hast discovered thyself to another than me and art gone up. Thou hast enlarged thy bed and made thee a covenant with them. Thou lovest their bed where thou sawest it. And thou wentest to the king with ointment and didst increase thy perfumes and didst send thy messengers far off and didst abase thyself even unto hell. Thou art wearied in the greatness of thy way. Yet saidst thou not, there is no hope. Thou hast found the life of thine hand, therefore thou wast not grieved. Let me quickly explain these words. I have read it to you distinctly. Now verse 7. Upon a high and lofty mountain, the pagan nations of Canaan worshipped God on every high hill, in the high places. And so Israel took a bed up there to make love with this false religion and these false gods. Spiritual adultery, that's why it's called a bed. Even thither wentest thou up to offer sacrifice. They adopted the high places of the, land, of the nations of Canaan, and it says that about Manasseh. Maybe I should have had you read the chapter about Manasseh so that this would make even more sense. Verse 8, Behind the doors also in the posts hast thou set up thy remembrance. In their homes, behind the door and behind the post of the door, the doorposts, they put little icons for their idols to remind themselves of their idols. This is God noticing every feature of their idolatry. What was supposed to be on those doorposts? The law of Moses was supposed to be written on those doorposts so that every time they went out and every time they came in, they were reminded of their religion. But now they're reminding them remembrances, remembrance. They're reminding themselves of their pagan religion every time they go out and they come in. For thou hast discovered thyself to another than me. That's a person revealing themselves by taking their clothes off in the intimate relationship of adultery. For thou hast discovered thyself to another than me. I'm your husband. You and I are the ones that share intimate times together. But now you're sharing your intimacy with others. You've gone up. You've enlarged thy bed. You're inviting someone else into our bed and made thee a covenant with them. Thou lovest their bed where thou sawest it. To watch the pageantry of the pagan worship of God, it seduces men and it overwhelms men. The Catholic Church can put together a show in its cathedrals, the likes of which no Baptist church can even imagine until they've seen it. And it overwhelmed these poor Jews. So they wanted to copy it. You loved, you lovest their bed where thou sawest it. You made a covenant with them. You've enlarged your bed. You love them instead of me. You revealed yourself to them. You've become intimate with them instead of just with me. Then you went to the king with ointment, trying to get these foreign nations to aid them with defense and companies of men, soldiers, to protect them from Babylon. 
They're not going to repent to God to be protected from Babylon. They want to get other kings to help them. Do you remember what we've learned so far in Isaiah? Like chapters 30 and 31 that were specifically about them hauling gifts down to Egypt to try to get Egypt to defend them against Assyria. Chapters 30 and 31. So this is what this is talking about. When you saw their pageantry, you adopted their God, you started worshiping in high places, you made your bed up there with them, and then when you went to the king, he's he's describing it in terms of adultery, you went with ointment, you decorated yourself up like a woman, and didst increase thy perfumes, and you sent your messengers or ambassadors far off, and didst debase thyself even unto hell. You reduced yourself to hellish whores that deserve to be killed. You debased yourself in what you did to these foreign nations. This is the God of glory. This is the God I love, the God I worship, and the God I preach. I'm never going to change. This is the Bible. This is how the Bible addresses idolaters. This is how the Bible addresses his people. This is how Isaiah, who is very bold, preached. And I want to preach just like him. Thou art wearied in the greatness of thy way. Verse 10. This religion has cost you a lot of effort. You're wearied in it. Yet saidest thou not, there is no hope. You never recognize the fact that there's no hope in these gods you're trusting in. Smooth stones in a stream aren't going to protect you from the Babylonians. Thou hast found the life of thine hand. You put forth a little bit of effort. You got a few condolences out of the kings that you went to. You got a little bit of encouragement. You got a little promotion on the job. So you thought everything was well with you. You put forth your hand and made your efforts and chose your religion and a few things worked out so you thought that you had found life, that you were safe. Therefore thou wast not grieved. I love to hear people, and I mean this in a very sarcastic, ironic way. I love to hear people who have turned their back on the Lord saying, I have such peace with the Lord. That is such a lie. That is such a lie, brethren. Are you able to interpret things like that? They're comfortable with themselves. They don't even know who the Lord is because they've turned their back on him. And that was the case right here. Verses 7 through 10. Idolaters do not see the hopelessness of their religion. They should have cried out, there is no hope. In verse 10, there is no hope in this religion. But because they found a little bit of life with their efforts... You know, they set those beds up and they set those idols up and the people came and there was a crowd there and they're all bowing together and they're all worshiping and there was a good crop that season and they thought everything was okay. So you you didn't grieve. Do we have to wait until half our church has COVID-19 before we grieve? Why don't we grieve right now for whatever sins might be in our lives? Did you hear the prayer a few minutes ago that during this time, when we can be still and think more because we have less to do, that we would examine ourselves and check out our spiritual trajectory? Let's do it. Verses 11 and 12. The Jews feared enemies, but not their God. Verse 11. And of whom hast thou been afraid or feared, that thou hast lied and hast not remembered me, nor laid it to thy heart? Have not I held my peace even of old, and thou fearest me not? I will declare thy righteousness and thy works, for they shall not profit thee. Why have you been afraid to leave me? Who's intimidated you? Why don't you fear me instead? Why are you fearing them? 
and letting them intimidate you into a new religion and lying against me and against my covenant. Why didn't you just come to me? Is it because I haven't jumped on you every single time you've done this in the past? Is that the reason? Have not I held my peace even of old, and thou fearest me not? You know, the goodness of God should lead us to repentance. God did hold back many times. Psalm 78, Psalm 106. Some of the Psalms will say, and he forgave them, but they lied to him. He forgave them, and they turned from him, and he forgave them. You know, like the book of Judges. So they served the Lord for a generation, then the next generation served idols. God would raise up a man to rescue, they'd serve the Lord, then they'd serve idols. And he said, I know, I've let you off many times. Have not I held my peace even of old, and thou fearest me not? Do you know what that means? It means this, the goodness of God should lead us to repentance. Romans 2.4 The fact that things are going decently in your life should not lead you to presumption, they should lead you to repentance. It's Romans 2.4 You know what? Our blessed God with those Jews was hated if he did and hated if he didn't. When he punished them, they hated it. When he swallowed Korah and Abiram and that group of enemies and the rest he burned with fire, the nation grieved about them. And so he killed many thousands more. What a, this God, because of our depravity, if he chastens us in love, though that church hated him. If he didn't chasten them, but just held back and held his peace and let them go for a while, they hated him and went off to a new religion. Do you feel sorry for him? I feel sorry for him. Do you know how I'm going to take care of that sorrow? He can have all of me right now. He can chasten me. I tell him he can abuse me. I use the word abuse. He can abuse me if that will get him glory. And I mean it. That song we sing is, goes a little ways. And if my soul were sent to hell, thy righteous law proves it well. Because when he's let me alone, I've missed him. When he's chastened me, it's been good. He can do whatever he wants with me. I'm going to love him on either end. If he sends my soul to hell, there'll be no one there loving him more than I do. This grieves me. And I'm glad it grieved Isaiah, and I'm glad it grieved the Lord. I will declare thy righteousness and thy works, in verse 12, for they shall not profit thee. I'm going to expose how wicked you are. I'm going to indict you for your crimes. And they're not going to profit you. The enemies are going to come. Why have you been afraid of them and turned from me? Why didn't you fear me? Why didn't you trust me out of taking care of you? Verse, beginning at verse 13 and 14, huge differences of the righteous and wicked. Verse 13, when thou criest, let thy companies deliver thee. But the wind shall carry them all away. Vanity shall take them. But he that putteth his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain and shall say, cast ye up, cast ye up, prepare the way, take up the stumbling block out of the way of my people. 
There's a huge difference between the righteous and the wicked. The transition in this chapter takes place right here. At the very end of the chapter, he goes back to the wicked, but there's a transition right in the middle of verse 13. When thou criest, when Babylon has surrounded your city of Jerusalem, let thy companies deliver thee of these four nations whose gods you have embraced and where you have inflamed yourself with their idols, but the wind shall carry them all away. The wind from God, vanity shall take them. It would take nothing to destroy the friends that they trusted in and the things that you trust in are nothing. They'll all dissolve as we read earlier today from 2 Peter chapter 3. But there's a transition right in the middle of verse 13. But this inspired disjunctive contrasting the first half of the verse with the second half. But he that putteth his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. And so there's the prophet looking forward to those that through the captivity in Babylon would humble themselves and trust in the Lord and they would come back and they would inhabit God's holy mountain of Mount Zion and the city of Jerusalem. And shall say, verse 14, Zerubbabel, Joshua the high priest, Nehemiah, Ezra, Haggai, Zechariah, they would say, cast ye up, cast ye up, prepare the way, civil engineering terms of making a highway, take up the stumbling block out of the way of my people and get them back in Jerusalem. The highways that we've read about, like, like in Isaiah chapter 11, from 10 to the end of the chapter, is about the highway of God bringing his people back to Jerusalem. And so that's verses 13 and 14. And the great, trans, the great difference between the righteous and the wicked. The first half of verse 13, when idolaters or when wicked men cry because of their troubles, the Lord doesn't hear. Proverbs chapter 1, Lady Wisdom says, When you call on me, I will laugh at your calamity. Because when I offered wisdom to you, you wouldn't take it. And when they could have feared the Lord and put their trust in him, they didn't. But those that did... They would come back from the city of Babylon. Cyrus would be their shepherd and bring them back, not for price or reward, but because God told them to. And so we come to the next lesson, which is verses 15 through 19. God is very merciful to the truly repentant. Oh, is he merciful to the truly repentant. And so in this chapter, we have a warning to the wicked and we have comfort to those that will trust God, even if they're taken into captivity. Verse 15. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. For I will not contend forever, neither will I be always wroth. For the spirit should fail before me and the souls which I have made. For the iniquity of his covetousness was I wroth, and smote him. I hid me, and was wroth, and he went on frowardly in the way of his heart. I have seen his ways, and will heal him. I will lead him also, and restore comforts unto him, and to his mourners. I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to him that is far off, and to him that is near saith the Lord, and I will heal him. Amen. Oh, these verses are good as the prophet moves from those in Babylon under his chastening for 70 years when he was wroth with them all the way to God putting a message in the lips of his preachers, which is the gospel of peace. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace. Peace.
peace, saith the Lord. And that is the message of the gospel. God is at peace with eunuchs. God is at peace with Gentiles. God is at peace with us knowing our depravity. And he's going to have mercy upon us. And so this, this section, this lesson, verses 15 through 19, God is very merciful to the truly repentant. Verse 15 should be one of your favorites of this section of the Bible. Because God describes himself in such lofty terms from such a lofty place. And he tells what kind of people are with him. Repentant people. Humble, broken, contrite people are with him in his high and holy place. Those that are willing to say to him, I am wrong. You are right. I will do it your way. It's not my comfort zone. It's not what my flesh likes, but I'll do it your way. I will turn unto the Lord with all my heart. I'll forsake everything that I've ever done that displeased thee. They're with him. And they walk with him. And they're in Jerusalem. The Jerusalem for us that is above. That's the spiritual city of our God. He calls himself the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity. He's the only being that can inhabit a concept. That can inhabit infinite time duration. Or no time at all. He inhabits eternity. From everlasting to everlasting, he is God. And there's no one like him. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. He's a holy God. I dwell in the high and holy place. I will have communion. I will have fellowship with him that is of a contrite and humble spirit. And I will revive that humble spirit. And I will revive that contrition. This is repentance. This is brokenness before God. And the elect remnant that were taken into Babylon were humbled by that captivity. And God comforted them. And God healed them, which is what this, this section is about. God healing the repentant. For I will not contend forever. I'm not going to leave you in Babylon forever. Verse 16, neither will I always be wroth. I'm not going to be angry all the time. I get over it. Because if I didn't get over it, the spirit should fail before me. I'd destroy all you people. My judgments would overwhelm me, the souls which I have made. You're my people. You're my church. You're my bride. For the iniquity of your covetousness was I wroth. I'm in verse 17. And smote thee, smote him. I smote you as a nation. I smote you as a church. I hid me from you. I was wroth. I let Nebuchadnezzar have you. And you went on frowardly in the way of your heart. You didn't learn as, as quickly as you should have. I have seen his ways. I've seen Israel. I've seen the church. And I will heal him. I'm going to do it for my namesake. You know, we've learned it's not stated here because it is stated in other places that we've already come to. I have seen his ways and will heal him. I will lead him also and restore comforts unto him and to his mourners. I'm going to build them back up. I'm going to comfort their broken hearts. I'm going to heal them, like he said in the last half of verse 15, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. You know, when we repent, or when God, and God comes to us so mercifully, sometimes our repentance is, is hard to even measure compared to the sins that we've had against him, and yet God is merciful. He sees our ways. He knows we're depraved. Listen, Psalm 103 is something that I use in prayer quite often. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. He remembereth their frame that they are dust. And this is God right here. I see him. 
I was wroth, I hid myself. He continued frowardly in the way of his heart. They were a stubborn and stiff-necked people. And I got to a place where, listen, if I don't pull back, I'm going to destroy the spirits I've made, and this church won't exist anymore. So I'm going to heal them. I'm going to bring them home. And I'm going to put a message in his prophet's mouths and in the preacher's mouths of peace. Peace to him that is far off and to him that is near. My brethren, verse 19 is so beautiful. To him that is far off, who are those? And to him that is near, who are those? It is Acts chapter 2 and the day of Pentecost by Peter. It is Acts. It's Ephesians chapter 2 verses 13 and 17 by Paul. Who are those that are near? The Jews. Who are those that are far off? The Gentiles. And he preached peace to them that are far off and to him that is near, and I will heal him. And the Lord did exactly that. We had it given to us in chapter 56, but here it is repeated again. Those that are near and those that are far off, Jews, Gentiles, it's peace. The gospel of peace. It was Isaiah 52 and verse 7 that Paul uses in Romans 10 and verse 15. How beautiful on the, on the mountains are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace. Peace, peace to him that is far off and to him that is near, saith the Lord, and I will heal him. I'm going to save this church for my own namesake that I might be known in all the earth by delivering them out of Babylon and using Cyrus to do it. And I'm going to plant them back here. I'm going to make a highway for them to this city. And I'm going to raise up men, prophets like Zechariah and Haggai, whose ministry was to encourage the Nehemiahs and the Ezra's and the Zerubbabel's to build and rebuild that city and the temple. But the last lesson is there's no such thing for the wicked. The reprobates are cut off and they do not get the mercy or the peace of God. But the wicked are like the troubled sea. When it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt, there is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. This prophetic similitude of wicked men. First of all, think about a troubled sea. This is not the still waters that the shepherd Jesus Christ leads his sheep beside. This is a sea under a storm and undercurrents and currents and tides blasting the shore, tossing back and forth, throwing itself against the rocks, stirring up the dirt and mire that is underneath, casting it up on shore so that you see all that junk when you go look at a real seashore. There's junk up there that the sea has tossed up. The wicked are like the troubled sea, not a peaceful one, when it cannot rest and it doesn't rest, when there's a storm upon it whose waters cast up mire and dirt. The wicked just keep doing wicked things. They're never at rest. They never stop doing wicked things. And there is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. The peace is to the righteous. Those who are contrite, those who are humble, for us to be willing to get down and say, I was wrong. I am sorry for offending thee, O Lord. I am sorry for even disappointing thee. Use me. Abuse me. But get glory out of my life because you deserve everything I can give you. You are my God and I trust no one else. I love no one else compared to thee. Let that be our prayer. Let us be the righteous and the merciful and the just, the contrite and the humble in this passage so that we can walk with this God who inhabits eternity, who dwells in the high and holy place, but he does have men. that He loved, he loved Enoch, and Enoch was a sinner. He loved David. David was a great sinner. We can walk with this God, and he'll deliver us.
He might deliver us the way of verses 1 and 2. Take us out early. He might keep us here for a long time, like Job, so that we can see our children's children of the fourth generation. Do you know what? He can do whatever he wants with me. Can he do whatever he wants with you? Peace, peace to him that is far off and to him that is near, saith the Lord. The message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is peace. He's called the Prince of Peace. Our feet are to be shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace because he's made peace with us, between us and God. God was wroth. The message came of peace. I will save those people. They have continued so forwardly in their sins, but for my great namesake, I will recover them. I will give them some contrition. I will give them some humility. I will give them messengers to tell them that I'm at peace with them again. I will rebuild Jerusalem. I will rebuild that temple, and I will send the desire of all nations. And do you know what the desire of all nations did at that temple? He made peace. And when that veil was rent from top to bottom, peace had been made by the blood of his cross. This is the gospel of peace, peeking at us, showing us a little bit of it, even in Isaiah 57, as the Lord has to indict that nation for their wicked idolatry and mock them for it. But in the midst of the trouble, in the midst of the judgment, there's blessings of comfort. I hope today there has been something for you to consider in your life and examine yourself and change. We've had wonderful lessons. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, when you speak peace, there is peace. And thank you for speaking peace through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and speaking peace to our souls. But Heavenly Father, do not let us be at peace with ourselves if we have sin in our lives. Let us be contrite and repent. Let us be broken and humbled before Thee. And only then heal us. And only then revive us. But Heavenly Father, be merciful. O Lord God, by Thy Spirit and by Thy Word and by the preaching of this day, the ministry of that Word, bless us and humble us by it that we would repent of our sins, that we might dwell with thee in the high and holy place of eternity and walk with thee forever. Walk with thee while we are alive here on earth and walk in our uprightness when, are we, when we are with thee in glory. Thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the company of men that have published it. Thank you for the men that lost their lives to publish it. Thank you for saving us from the idolatry of our forefathers. Thank you for inviting us Gentiles in and giving us a place and filling us with joy and receiving our sacrifices through the Lord Jesus Christ. Be with this church. Put a hedge about us from this little pandemic. But, O oh Lord, convict us for the great matter of sin, that we would repent of our sins and call upon Thee and run to Thee and live for Thee and serve Thee in worship and in lifestyle and in every part of our lives. It's in Jesus' name we commit this day and ask thy blessing upon all that has been said. In Jesus' name, amen.